Sometimes we go through periods in our life which <clears throat> we may feel a bit desperate, wandering, not quite sure where we're going to go, what the, the future is going to hold, <clears throat> may uh, having a feeling of a desperation to it. Most people, many people, go through sometimes in their lives like that. For me, it's always good to just come back to uh, certain basic phrases, you know, like we say, "Well, come to your senses, man. Come back, to, come to your senses, because it has the meaning of wake up. Come to your senses, wake up. Stop getting lost and wandering aimlessly. But it also has the sense of come back to seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and what's happening in your mind. <clears throat> These are the senses, the six senses. So, whenever, whenever you're feeling a bit dazed or desperate, you just kind of slap yourself in the face and say, come to your senses, man. Come to your senses, wake up. Because we can spend so much time kind of sitting on the fence in many ways, in times in our life where just, well, you know, I don't really want to commit this way, but I don't want to give up that option. I don't really want to commit this way, but, you know, maybe I should, but I don't really, I'm not, I'm on the fence. You know, sitting on the fence and, and uh, you know, sometimes we just have to go for it, bite the bullet and commit and trust and trust in our heart. Uh, you know, no. For me, there was a period of time where I was sitting on the fence in terms of uh, what should I do with my relationship with the Dhamma. And at some point, I just said, "Well, look, I'm just going to have to get off of this place of indecision and just make a commitment." and then see how it goes. And, uh, and that's really the only way you can get anywhere, right? I mean, you know, the path is a metaphor that we use. It's, a, it's just a simile. Or, um, but you know, the similes are useful because they have a certain relationship to real, reality. And, and sitting on a fence, you know, there's, <clears throat> there's no path being walked. It's, it's kind of biding time. And, it's not necessarily good or bad in and of itself. You know, sometimes we need to do that, but uh, at some point, it's it's good to just uh, you know notice if we're sitting on the fence at least that much. Notice we're sitting on the fence, and, and so well, what are we waiting for? It's like um, I remember at some point, you know, I wasn't ready to to fully commit myself to the Dhamma, 
and yet at the same time I wasn't taking worldly values seriously anymore. So it was kind of a, a limbo zone. I think they call it purgatory. Is that purgatory? No. But anyway, never mind. That's I don't want to confuse the issue. But uh, that uh, you know, if you practice Dhamma long enough, or if you just have a natural sense of wisdom, you know, you, you see so much um, nonsense in the world. You know, there's a lot that uh, you just feel like, well, I can't really take this seriously. You know, certain uh, worldly aims and values. One of our chants, you know, worldly aims and values, and just don't believe it anymore. You know, just don't. At some at some level in your gut, you know, you just don't believe that that's really going to deliver what it's promising. And uh, at the same time, not quite sure of the alternative, and then you know, we can find ourselves sitting on a on a fence for a while. So it's just good to, to notice that, but also good to recognize that, um, you know, when you when you get off the fence, then often, then we start walking, we start going somewhere. <clears throat> and, you know, we have to be careful over time, too, just being in the world, jobs, um, families, or whatever, you know, it can... If we're using it as Dharma practice, that uh, then everything is an opportunity for for learning. But it can also make our, ourselves a bit hard, you know, a bit hard-hearted or, or callous, uh, as we just get dull to the world—a barrage of of information, uh, um, you know, dealing with most of the people in the world who are are not like radiating uh, wisdom and all-encompassing. Uh, uh, immeasurable loving kindness, for example, and then uh, our hearts can become a bit hard, and uh, it's easy to come up with, you know, rationalizations for whatever we're doing. That's easy, but uh, just be aware that our thoughts are heavily influenced by delusion. So, whatever we're thinking, you know, it's you can't fully trust your thoughts. You know, it's easy to come up with reasons, for sure. Uh, but uh, in terms of uh, looking deeply for uh, a direction or for answers or for where should I go now type of a thing, you have to look beyond thoughts. And that's often where bringing the mind to a place of stillness comes in. And then um, without trying to figure things out rationally, you know, just bring them, allow the mind to, to come to stillness and then in that process, often the answer can become clear. You know, through, um, just through living ordinary lives, whether it's an ordinary life with families and jobs or ordinary lives in a monastery, uh, the, uh, uh, the things that are pleasing us, or often the things that are holding us back, or holding us on the fence, holding us from from making a, a, a real commitment. In spiritual practice, sometimes it is uh, necessary to you know, jump off the cliff a bit, uh, and just trust that everything's going to be okay, and, and um, 
you know, make that kind of commitment. Because it's often the things which are, are pleasing us are the same things which can harm us. You know, they, they tend to go together. And the Buddha would talk about, you know, really take a close look at everything in life. I mean, don't take, don't take the Buddha's word for it. Don't take any teacher's word for it. You look, and what are the things in our life uh, that give us pleasure, right? Everything gives, everything, you know, that we like gives a certain amount of pleasure, but it also has certain drawbacks to it. So it's good just to look on both sides of things. Even the things which, you know, are sometimes unpleasant on a deeper level, we're kind of attracted to them. So things have certain gratification, and there's a certain drawback or, or sometimes danger lurking in the center of that. And, and then once we get a clearer idea of those, then we look for an escape. And it's like naturally the heart looks for something that, that doesn't have a hook, you know, embedded inside of it. And it's difficult not to get caught up in things which are, you know, relatively superficial. You know? Even people who you know, are sincere, not overly materialistic, you know, their refuge is not in, in material things. Yet, um, you know, the pull of the world is strong, and it's good to just recognize that. And, and uh, you know, if we kind of take the way of the diamonds, then uh, um, it's, it's uh, usually uh, leads us to getting beaten up. <laughs> Whereas uh, it's different if you follow your heart. And um, that doesn't always necessarily lead us in a direction where other people would understand our decisions. It doesn't necessarily uh, uh, lead us in a direction where we even understand where it's going. Right? But sometimes just following your heart, um, it, uh, it's a bit safer because, you know, the whole thing with, with owning things, you know, the relationship between owning things and letting go, you know, as soon as you own something, it owns you. If you own a house, it owns you. If, if you own a car, then it ends up owning you. Uh, if you own a partner, then they end up owning you. If you own a, you know, and same things in monasteries. If you own a monastery, if you're the abbot of a monastery, and you feel like you own it, then uh, it owns you. I'll say that for personal experience. Even if you own a bowl, you know, I mean, this is, I, I have to admit, I do identify with this. This is my bowl. Right? Um, I mean, I recognize this is still a limitation, you know, that I should really, you know, every time I see this, and I see this is my bowl, it's a possession, it reinforces a sense of self. You know, there's a sense of me, I, subject, object, relationship, my ball. But, you know, I, I also kind of remind myself well, in the process uh, of doing that, then the ball owns me. And, uh, you know, that's not my ultimate refuge. <laughs> Although I, I do like it. <laughs> 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 
I can en- I can enjoy it in the meantime. <laughs> And if you own a personality, your personality owns you. So anything, anywhere, inside, outside, uh, mental or physical, then uh, wherever possessiveness or ownership starts to land, then beware there's uh, drawbacks lurking. Now often, uh, we... We have some wonderful things in life already, and we forget to fully appreciate what we have. Right? This is—it's easy. It's just so easy to start taking things for granted. It's like we, you know, have a, a table that's fully laid for us. You know, some beautiful fine things on this table, fine foods on the table, and uh, you know, it's great for one dinner. But then, you know, the next dinner of the same food is there. It's like, well leftovers, right? It's not quite as special. And the next day, the same food is there, and you think, geez, I'd really love a pizza instead, or, you know, I'd really love something different. And, and you know, it's interesting just to look at the, the nature uh, of how the mind works. And often it, it's good just to remind ourselves that, you know, we, we often have, have everything, we often have a lot of really good things in our life. Certainly we have enough to be happy. Certainly we have enough to, to, to be, to live and to practice Dhamma. So developing contentment is not just something that happens at the end of the path, but it's a process we can go through, we can consciously develop contentment with what we have, appreciation for what we have. And then any time the mind comes up and you know, says, yes, but I want that. I want what I don't have. You know? uh, just be aware of how the mind works. It's kind of endless um, dissatisfaction. Or how just dissatisfaction is just part of an unenlightened mind. And it doesn't mean we're personally flawed. It's just good to recognize that this is the nature of a mind. It's, it's hungry. Even if we have a table that's laden full of food, after a while we can forget to be grateful for it. After a while we can take it for granted. Uh, we're no longer content with it. And uh, no matter how much we have, it's like you know, we always uh, we want the things that uh, we don't have or we want the things that we can't get. So as you say, you know, wake up, come to your senses, and because we're not getting any younger. Um, you know, for as uh, time goes on, it's good just to reflect. You know, we're, uh, we're not getting younger, which usually entails getting older, and um, time is limited. Time is precious. So it's good just to reflect on that. We have a chant that we uh, are encouraged to to chant every day. One line of it is, uh, the the days and nights are relentlessly passing. 
how well are we spending our time? And just reflect, well, how am I spending my time? You know, is it in line with my deeper values? You know, because it's, it's so easy and in many ways encouraged to, to waste precious time or we don't realize how precious time was until maybe it's passed already. But right now, you know, we, we have everything we need to practice. You know, we have many good things in our life. We're, if, we're, if, we're, if we're still breathing, you know, if we still have a body that's, that's uh, a functioning, a mind that is uh, somewhat clear, uh, then uh, we have the opportunity. And often it is those periods of desperation or periods of pain sometimes, uh, or periods of hunger, you know, hungry for something, wanting something, that actually motivates us or kind of drives us on uh, to find something uh, more deeply satisfying. So if you experience... Um, an unhappiness or dissatisfaction or some kind of angst. and It doesn't necessarily mean that's bad. Sometimes it just arises from maybe seeing, seeing a certain insubstantiality in the world and yet not really knowing where to go from there yet. Ajahn Chah would talk about our true home, coming back to our true home. And that's, uh, that's something that we can all look for. So often it's the, maybe the pain, sometimes, which drives us on uh, to find our true home. You may have heard that Buddhists talk about suffering. And there's a reason for that. When we talk about, you know, the, uh, say, the pain or the hunger and desire that leads on to what might be called our true home, then uh, it's really only through deeply and fully acknowledging the limitations of, of the world, you know, how much happiness it can provide, how much satisfaction, how much contentment. It's really only through acknowledging that that it allows us to uh, turn to something uh, more satisfying, more meaningful, more freeing. And that's where we start to talk about um, liberation or freedom. And we're talking about freedom in the life, and well, this, is, of course, is the land of freedom. And everyone loves to talk about freedom, and we, we do uh, lots to bring freedom to other uh, countries in the world. And, but what is it, really? I mean, you know, there's so many different levels of what we think of as freedom. And, and for a lot of people, freedom just means uh, the, the opportunity to be as, as selfish as we want. <laughs> the opportunity to do what we want, when we want to do it. And uh, hopefully if you have enough uh, money, then you can be uh, relatively instantly gratified to do what you want, when you want to do it. And that's considered freedom. You have enough money to be free. Uh, to give you a certain freedom, financial freedom. <clears throat> but if, if you really look at how those people live and you really look into the hearts of those type of people um, beyond the surface, then it's interesting to see, well, you know, what, what's the result of that type of freedom? And 
how free is it really? Um, because often, often they end up kind of depressed having that. It would be depressing if you would be if you would have the means to get everything that you want quickly when you want it, and then it's still not satisfying. You're still not content. Then you could see how that would be a bit depressing. So when we talk about freedom, there's there's different levels of freedom because um, as long as we're unenlightened, we we're not free really. Right? We're, we're still in a, a prison of our own minds, of uh, of our, our past karma is limiting us. Uh, our defilements are limiting us. Our desires limit us. We end up being a slave to our desires. So, so really, there's there's not a lot of freedom there. To the degree that that we buy into it, we don't have to. You know, it's always a degree. How much do we buy into it, and how much not? But desires definitely are are freedom limiting. They're the opposite of, of real freedom. Certainly, anger, hatred, uh, irritation. There's no freedom in the mind. You know, uh, how free are we when, when things happen? Someone pushes our button, and we react, and we get upset, and then, well, we're not free. It's like we've become a slave to that emotion, that reactivity, that situation, that person who can push our button, that situation that makes us dissatisfied, and we're we're a slave to that instead of being free. So when we really talk about freedom, we're we're talking about something which is much higher level. Uh, Liberation. Liberation of consciousness. Now, of course, this is only, you know, theory until we start to experience it in in our own lives. And... uh, until that time, it's good just to check, you know, are, to what degree are we free and to what degree are we in a prison of our own making. One of the famous teachers in Thailand, Ajahn Buddha Dasa, uh, had a famous talk. It was called The Prison of Life. Uh, just how the, the things that, that limit us in life. And I remember in the early days, Ajahn Sumedha would... would use that simile as well and how um, there's a very strong tendency in, in most of us just to uh, decorate the inside of our cell and say, okay, well, we're in prison, but we're going we're gonna to paint the walls, we're going to make it look nice, uh, we're going we're gonna to make the, the prison cell as uh, nicely decorated as possible. But no matter how nicely you decorate it, uh, as soon as you realize that you're in prison, it, it's not it's not the same. You, it's like once you know that actually I'm in a prison cell, then uh, there's this feeling of how do I get out of here? Where's the escape? And then you start to consider, you know, to what degree. You know, are we really alone in the world? 
Because as long as we're in the world, even if we're surrounded by the people, surrounded by other people, then uh, there uh, can be this feeling of uh, loneliness, alienation that comes up. Now, being alone and being lonely are two very different things, obviously. But as long as we're still in prison, then the um, the sense of of being in solitary confinement uh, tends to come up. One of the similes for Nibbana, or enlightenment, is an island. An interesting simile, you know, in the sense that you know, it's like uh, once you've once you've reached the island, like beyond the world. Um, so I'm very impressed that Jerry has reached that. Now, in only a few days of being here. <laughs> can confidently say he's dwelling in the island, <laughs> on the island, on the further shore. And he's still willing to come back and with his with his raft and bring people to the further shore of the island. I and mean, that is really deep compassion. But we, you know, when we talk about you know this interesting you know, interplay between on one level, even if we're in a crowd, we're really alone. You know, we're we're alone with our seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching. Uh, we're living in our own worlds. Often, literally, you know, we we live in in different worlds uh, because so much is projected from our own minds. A huge amount. Uh, I don't really know if I see the same color as you do. You know, when I when I look at at the different shirts around the room. But we've learned to all agree to call, to, to call it, you know, black, red, white, etc. It's brown. <laughs> See what I mean? <laughs> we live in different worlds, and uh, but I think even to a greater degree, you know, than than we recognize, recognize, um, pretty much. I mean, it's a bit. It's a bit interesting to think in these terms, but out there, really, what is it, just uh, electromagnetic particles or waves, and then uh, where does it actually become perceived as beings, color, three-dimensional, etc., with meanings, with shapes, etc.? Is that actually out there, or does it all happen somewhere in the interpretation within our own consciousness? Certainly a a huge degree uh, and probably the most important uh, factor in our liberation is, is recognizing um, that how we perceive the world is, is up to us. It's happening to us. Um, there, you can't say... Um, I mean, one day, one day this food is wonderful. The next day we don't like it. Uh, one day, um, whatever, we're, whatever we're doing, this particular activity... Uh, it's very satisfying. The next day, we're fed up with it. Um, 
So it doesn't have to do with external reality. It has to do with what, what we're projecting. And people are always projecting different things. That's, how, that's why we always get into arguments. <laughs> people perceive things differently. And that's not actually a problem. That's just normal. Um, it's only a problem if we think that our projections are ultimate reality. If we, if we believe our projections too strongly, then, um, then we make it into something more than it is. But even if you're an island, you know, an island still is in contact with a vast body of water. And so an, even an island is not in isolation. So even though we, in some ways we, we live in separate worlds, there is this very basic interconnectedness. And really, it's only the delusion of a separate self which blocks us from realizing that, that peace, and that, that real security of being interconnected, being, being tied in with the things around us. So even if you're an island, I mean, an island in the Pacific is in contact with this huge, vast ocean, which then is in contact with everything else in the world. But, you know, we go through periods where sometimes we get an inkling of that and other periods where, you know, the mind's just, it goes through a bit of a Minnesota winter. I don't know if you've ever had periods in your life. It's like emotional Minnesota winters where, you know, like heart's getting a bit numb. It's like I remember when I was a child, uh, the feet and hands would get numb going out and playing and, and uh, you know, we wouldn't think anything of it. It's just great fun going out there, having so much fun playing in the snow, that uh, you know you don't don't realize how how numb we're getting until we come in and start to warm up a little bit, and then uh, and then it starts to be starts to really sting. So you know there are times where. Uh, You know, we may go through a bit of a of a winter or a period in our life. And it may, you know, it's easy to feel like it shouldn't be that way, it should be different. Um, why me? But like any winter, it's just winter, you know. It used to be fall and it's going to be spring. It's just a period of time. But uh, often in those periods, it's, uh, it's easy to lose perspective. Easy to lose perspective, you know. It just feels like the uh, you know, sun's not shining, or you start to lose the differentiation between day and night. Start to you know, lose a sense of highs and lows, even. And uh, there's a difference between dullness and equanimity. This is a, this is an important thing to consider. You know, if you're real equanimity, <clears throat> under it comes from understanding, really understanding the way things are, and then the mind doesn't rise up, get 
totally excited, get drawn in, it doesn't get fooled. But it also doesn't get fooled when things are, are difficult. Well, dullness is different, and that often can mask his, his equanimity. Um, Ajahn Chah used to point out that uh, water buffaloes in Thailand, uh, water buffaloes, uh, they don't tend to exude uh, intelligence. You're looking to, I don't know if you've ever been to Southeast Asia, but uh, even the water buffaloes are being replaced by tractors now, but you know, when I was a young monk in Thailand, we still had water buffaloes all around the monastery. And um, there's a certain equanimity about a water buffalo. It doesn't get angry much. It just kind of hangs out there in the mud. Um, it uh, doesn't get overly excited. Just kind of. Uh, but you don't think of a water buffalo as being enlightened. Although, who knows? <laughs> maybe, maybe they are. <laughs> but, but, but they don't tend to exude a sense of <laughs> radiant wisdom. Right? But, there is, but there is a certain equanimity, but it's a water buffalo equanimity. It's different. It's not based on... Uh, it's not arising from, from wisdom and understanding and deeply seeing. So it's always good to come back to a sense of... Uh, feeling, Vedana. We some come back to the senses. And that's a way that we can wake up. So what happens when you know when we become dull, it's like the, the feelings go away a bit. So it's good to come back and pay attention to to feeling when we see, feeling when we hear, feeling when we smell, taste, touch, and mental emotions. Now feeling is just the English translation that we have for the word Vedana. Vedana uh, is an entire path of practice in and of itself. Vedana is it, uh, it's not just physical sensations, but Vedana is, is a very basic uh, positive, negative, or sometimes neutral reaction to sense impressions. So, for example, you know, if we see something, very quickly there's a uh, uh, projection and, at least subtly, uh, a positive or negative vedana associated with it. And maybe you know, when we look at someone and recognize them, then with that perception, uh, positive, and, you, know, a, you know, if they're a friend, a sense of positive vedana arises or Maybe if someone who we find irritating, a sense of negative Vedana arises. And we don't really have a word in English uh, that covers all of that, but uh, we, we've kind of decided on the word feeling, of course. You know, it's much more broad than that. Uh, last night after the meditation, we took the canoe out in the late night sunset out there on the lake, very still. Skies are a mixture of blue, orange, red, and swirls of white, and green forest, and it was all reflected in the lake. And it was very easy for positive, or sukha, you know, happy, vedana, to arise. It's what we call beautiful. So when we when we see something that that uh, 
we like, it gives rise to pleasure. And it's called you know, um, sukha. Sukha is the opposite of dukkha. Dukkha is pain, suffering, discontent. Sukha is a sense of happiness, pleasure. So just paying attention to when Vedana arises at the sense doors is a whole practice within itself. And when we see something, it's so easy to get drawn into that which is beautiful, that which, that's which we want to see. But then what happens is then that sets us up for when we see something that is slightly less beautiful, or even worse, ugly, then the dukkha, Vedana, arises. And this is not something which is inherent in the object. It's simply something that we project, but then we experience. And again, this can create a prison for us. And it's happening on a very uh, subtle and momentary basis. So that's why if we're very vigilant, you know, every time we see something, every time we hear something, uh, we can, can just check. Uh, if Vedana arises, or if we see something is beautiful, or a sound is beautiful, then that's not a problem, but it's good just to, to uh, be aware, fully acknowledge that, because otherwise, very quickly, from Vedana, desire arises. When something is beautiful, then, yeah, that's good, and then I want that, and then it kind of rolls on from there. goes for food, of course. Usually we don't intentionally take food that brings Dukkha Vedana. Anyways, there's no food here that gives rise to Dukkha Vedana anyways. It's all Sukha Vedana. (laughs) So we don't even get a chance to practice with Dukkha Vedana much. The only thing is, the better the food is, the higher our standards become for Sukha Vedana, and then anything which is slightly lower then becomes Dukkha Vedana. And you start to see the relative value between between happiness and suffering. Sometimes what was once considered happiness, if we find a greater happiness, then if we're only given what we had before, it feels like suffering, or it feels less than fully satisfying. So should I sit out just rice tomorrow so people can practice? (laughs) I think that would be very compassionate. (laughs) Yeah. Also, it'd it'd be very good for your own practice to Watch their reaction, yeah. <laughs> Why, and not take it personally when they start writing notes to the cook. Yeah. Dear, dear, dear Brent, I'm sure you have the best of intentions. However, <laughs> but paying attention to uh, physical sensations in the body, you know, uh, it's a major part of practice bringing awareness into the body, being established in the body uh, all day long. Right? From the time we get up in the morning, and you start to stir, try to be aware of your body, uh, how it feels, uh, paying attention to comfort and discomfort, right? and, and just the posture of the body. But certainly, if you, if you want to investigate the Vedana side of it, it's basically comfort and discomfort, and how that, just that, is a prison, because... Uh, as soon as there's a little bit of discomfort, the tendency is to want to run away from it. And, the, and as soon as there is comfort, the tendency is to want to, to own it, to hold on to it, make it last as long as possible. So there's no 
real freedom there. Uh, that's why the, the body tends to want to be moving all the time. And when we force it to sit still in meditation, even if initially the posture is very comfortable, 40, you know, half an hour, 45 minutes, an hour, and you start to get some changes in the Vedana, you know, in your body happening. And so that's an opportunity to investigate that. Uh, when you're sitting meditation and discomfort starts to arise, uh, don't just blindly run away from it and change your posture, because that's, that's what we do in our... We've been doing that all our life. And it's not going to lead to freedom. But when discomfort starts to arise in the body, then recognize, oh, well, that's Dukkha Vedana. And that's all it is. And then we try to be patient with that. Right? And as long as there's enough mindfulness, we can see it objectively, and then it doesn't actually hurt so much. And, and then if the tendency to want to react against it, to try to escape it, to try to run away from it, arises, then we can be mindful of that. And so there's that, there's that habitual reaction that we've had our whole life to try to get away from that which is uncomfortable, that which is, is I call discomfort. And when it gets stronger, then I call it pain. But even once, it call, once we would refer to it as pain, knees, ankles, back, wherever, pain in the neck, then, then again, before we move, you know, if you can't just be patient with it uh, by going to your breath, then be patient with it by, by going to that spot and really looking at sensations and really looking at Vedana and, and, and that, you know, what is it exactly? We, do we think we know what, what pain is? I'm, you know, do, if we just see it as Dukkha Vedana, okay, well, that's just a sensation that arises from certain causes and conditions uh, but what is it exactly? Where is it precisely located? Try to locate it in your knee or your, your ankle without uh, visualizing, without any preconceived notions. Just try to go to that place uh, and see if you can locate it. Now, what is it without putting a concept of pain on it? Even by the time we call it pain, we're not seeing reality anymore. We're trying to get closer to reality where we don't have to give it a label. We don't even have to call it comfort or discomfort. Just, we're just paying attention to what's happening in the present, in our knee, in our ankles, on our back. And sometimes you get, it becomes so interesting, you forget that it's uncomfortable. And it simply is that, that's all, that's just what's happening. It just simply is. And you can do the same thing with, with pleasant feelings in the body. Hmm? Instead of just taking them for granted or assuming they're always going to be that way, just see them, well, these are, these are sensations which arise from certain causes and conditions. And go to that and try to understand that. And even before you label it pleasure, and try to get closer to reality. And... Uh, even this practice can, uh, can really lead to a lot of freedom in the mind because if we can start to get some uh, a freedom from comfort and discomfort, that same uh, wholesome habit 
can start to be applied to other areas of our life. You know, if we start to be uh, more understanding and accepting with physical pain or discomfort, then when in life we have mental pain or discomfort, then we can apply the same way of approaching it. Instead of running away, instead of wanting to get rid of it or thinking that something's wrong, just see that, well, this is the way life is right now. It's neither good nor bad. This is just the way that life is right now. I don't even have to call it pleasure or pain. Uh, we get a lot of practice with this in the monasteries in Thailand because there's a lot of times where it's physically really uncomfortable. And what you, what it, it just, you know, the, the way you can survive is for the long term is you have to use wisdom and awareness around it. If you just try to be tough, you know, tough it out, you can do that um, for short spurts, but it doesn't work in the long run, right? In the long run, what you have to do when, it's, when things are uncomfortable is have a, a broad spaciousness of mind and then just allow the, the dukkha vedana or the discomfort to, to be there in the center of that without reacting against it, without becoming upset. And, um, I mean, you think it's been hot today. This is like, you know, it's like a nice winter's day in Thailand. And, you know, if you have to wear these robes, uh, I mean, I, 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 I love Thailand. It's, it's a good thing I really love Thailand because otherwise I never would have spent so many years there because the heat is, is so difficult and often you can't uh, escape it, even at night. And even by you know, 7 or 8 in the morning, I'd just be drenched with sweat. You know, my robe would be all wet with sweat. And then it would kind of accelerate from there. <laughs> <laughs> Um, some people do better with heat than others, obviously. You know, it's, it, it depends on the person. Um, but I found the heat quite difficult. And so I had to take that as just, uh, okay, well, it's just Dukkha Vedana. Be patient with it. It's just Dukkha Vedana. Just be patient with it. And then our capacity for, for being patient with discomfort grows, grows, and grows. Um, you know, I grew up in a modern, middle-class, affluent society, and our, our level of what we consider comfortable is very high considered to most of history. Uh, so then going to a rural Thailand, say, more than 20 years ago, uh, the general standard of living was lower, the, the level of comfort was lower, and on top of that, you were, you were living as a renunciant. So you didn't even get the same level of comfort as the villagers did. So there were many opportunities um, to, to experience this, this Dukkha Vedana, and just had to be patient with it. And um, it became one of Ajahn Chah's you know, hallmark teachings, is just teaching people to to develop this patient endurance and to work through it and not to give up and uh, um, not to, you know, not to fall into the side of despair and, and not to kind of um, have a kind of an ego 
say, I'm going to conquer it type of an attitude, but, but just be there patiently, accepting it, and then um, the heart gets stronger and, and stronger. I mean, little things like, you know, the chanting that we, we did tonight, we did the English translation, but in Thailand, we would have to do the, the Pali, uh, in the Pali language, interspersed with the Thai translation, and we'd have to do the entire chanting sitting up on our toes. Um, and usually by the end of the uh, supreme praise of the Buddha, my toes were in extreme pain. <laughs> and then I still had the Dhamma and the Sangha to go. And so by that time, in, this, in the chanting, my attention shifted from devotion <laughs> to just dukkha vedana, just be paid, breathe with it, and breathe with it, stick with it. You know? And uh, then there's always the, you know, the, the, uh, kind of the desire, well, I'll just, I'll just go down off my toes and no one will notice. But the thing is, you're all sitting in line and then suddenly one's a lower and you can see, ah, he gave up. You, know? <laughs> you can notice, you can notice. Um, so, and it's just, you know, it's practice. Okay, can I make my mind spacious enough that, that I'm not simply in pain, but I'm actually being deeply patient with this Vedana. Instead of calling it pain, I just say, it's just Dukkha Vedana, certain sensations in the body. Um, this, this evening I was reminded that one of, uh, an old friend of mine who used to be a monk, uh, now his name is Patrick, but he used to name, be Pia Silo, and he was uh, uh, kind of a, he was a f- quite a few years, a few years younger than me in the robes, and um, he would tend to look up to me a bit, and would come, and he, and he would give me foot massages, and he really got into reflexology, and he was definitely of the no pain, no gain theory with reflexology, you know, if it's just, if you, if you hit a, a sensitive spot, that means uh, that's good, right? And the sensitive spot in, on your foot, you know, with one of these little massaging tools, uh, can send this you know, shock, you know, through your whole body. And uh, and he would he would come, he would offer you know, a foot massage, and as he's kind of probing my foot with um, his his tool, he'd be watching the expression on my face. <laughs> And he was just looking for me to, for me to flinch. He was just waiting for me to flinch, and then he was going to really dig into that spot. You know, so I was very, had to be very careful, <laughs> keep my mind spacious. You know, not give any indication that that was a particularly painful spot right there. Otherwise, you know, he's oh, this is really good for you. You're going to lay into it even more, and then it's like your whole nervous system kind of starts just jerking. Ah. <laughs> uh, my my ultimate reflexology Dukkha Vedana experience was in Bangkok once. Someone took me to a Chinese uh, reflexologist, and um, when the Chinese they were known for um, inflicting pain, and it was considered really healthy, you know. And I was just um, determined to take this on as a practice. 
and uh, you know, he was he was going to cure my my headaches. He was going to cure my migraines. I said, "Okay, fine, go for it." <clears throat> and as before, he worked on me. He was working on these some Japanese tourists next to me, and and they were screaming <laughs> like they were being tortured. <laughs> <laughs> Serious. I'm sitting in this <coughs> kind of comfortable chair. He's working on the people next to me, and they're like, you know, screaming. <coughs> and I just decided, well, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I, yeah. First of all, I'm a monk. It would be unmonk-like to lose my composure and scream. <laughs> um, but secondly, I thought, well, this is a good opportunity for... Let's see if I can just be patient with this and just actually catch the sensations before the reactivity sets in. And so he starts working on my foot, and he's watching me too. And uh, you know, he just the sides of the toes are some of the most sensitive spots. He's kind of really going into the sides of the toes, and he's he's not showing any. Why isn't he screaming? He's not even grimacing. And so it's he pushed a bit harder. You know, so. Oh, has he got a lead foot or what? So he pushed harder, and, and I'm just like, it's like some of the most intense pain I've ever experienced. And I'm just determined. Okay, just equanimity. Just be there with it. And uh, and then he started to speak to me in Thai. He said, why aren't you showing any pain? This is unusual. <laughs> Should be screaming, you know. It should. Uh, isn't this painful? Don't you feel that? And I said, Yes, I feel that. <laughs> I feel that. Um, but uh, you know, it wasn't that. <clears throat> it wasn't that I didn't feel it. It was just that, you know, I was trying to expand the capacity of my awareness so that, um, so I wasn't just a slave, you know, to sensation. Now, <clears throat> that type of practice, uh, you know, in forest masters, they, they've taken it to much, much higher degrees, uh, their ability uh, to practice. was far greater than mine, you know. For example, Ajahn Chah, when it came time, when his teeth were, were rotting and the dentist told him he needed to have his teeth pulled in order that, um, you know, he could get false teeth, and he refused to have Novocaine. Uh, he just said, just pull him. <laughs> and the, the dentist was like, hey, I don't, you know, is this, am I going to go to hell for this? You know, <laughs> you know pulling out John Cha's teeth without Novocaine. He said, no, no. You know, but he really wanted to take that on as uh, his, his practice, you know, uh, he just had a, a far greater ability to simply see that as sensation and stay with it. But I don't recommend doing that. <laughs> you know, uh, we have to recognize that, that you know, if we're not there yet, please don't try pulling your teeth without an overcame. It's, you know, this is, uh, use a another trained professional. <laughs> Please do not try this at home. But, you know, it gives you an idea of, 
of the potential of the human mind. And I'm, and you know, I'm, it still took a lot out of Ajahn Chah, you know, because it wasn't like he didn't feel the pain. You know, it's just that he could, he could, uh, his capacity was great enough that he could simply see it as pain, right? And and then and not react to it. <clears throat> Other teachers in the forest tradition, many actually have have taken that practice to deep levels in sitting meditation. Even if you have very good samadhi, and uh, generally if you have good samadhi, then you don't you don't have any discomfort in the body for a while. Maybe you can sit for an hour, two hours. The body just feels light and buoyant, like you're sitting on a cloud, floating. But eventually, if you don't move, uh, then pain starts to creep in. And um, Ajahn Mahabua, for example, uh, did this practice uh, when he, when, uh, particularly when he was about ten, you know, had been a monk about ten years, and would would do this practice regularly, and he would document it. <coughs> uh, Afterwards, he documented it in some of the books and talked about what it feels like um, where the, the, the pain gets um, in more and more intense to the point where it feels like the whole body's on fire. But then, if you, if you just stay with it, with mindfulness, if, if you have the, enough capacity of mindfulness to, to remain spacious, then suddenly the pain just disappears. And all that was left was a sense of um, pleasant feeling. So then, that's pretty mind-blowing. Well, then where's the pain? Is the pain actually in the body or is the pain in the mind? <clears throat> or what occurred there? And then, but then he would keep going and... Uh, and then the pain would build up again, and the second time, you know, go in the waves, and and it would be even more intense the second time, and then it would break like a balloon exploding, and then uh, again, it'd just be nothing but spaciousness. Would then keep on going throughout the night, and so generally the 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 third round of pain is the worst, and said he, he was sure he was going to die. <laughs> it's that bad. And yet it wasn't, I mean, he wasn't, he wasn't doing it to be macho, but he was doing it because he had the capacity of mindfulness that was great enough to, to see pain as, as merely sensation. Not my pain, not uh, I hate pain, I want to get rid of pain, uh, but it totally changes your relationship to pain. And it changes your understanding on a very deep level to what, what is happiness and what is suffering. And, and particularly when you see intense pain suddenly explode and disappear, then say, well, okay, well, well where is pain really? Is it external or is it internal? Is it is just, just an aspect of my own mind? A few years ago we went to visit one of uh, great teachers who's currently still living, Ajahn Janryan, and he practiced in a place called Comrade Cave, which uh, used to be uh, back in the 70s uh, the countryside in, in northern 
in Northeast Thailand was controlled by um, uh, communists, Thai communists, who were fighting the government forces. And there was this fantastic cave complex uh, that the communist forces used for as a bit of a base and a hospital. But after the communists were defeated, then um, forest monks moved in, and, and um, they still call it Comrade Cave. <clears throat> So we went to visit him there, and he was talking about his own practice. I brought a group of monks uh, up from Wat Bananachat, and uh, he was describing his own practice, and, and particularly with, with this practice of sitting for long periods of time, then he would say how difficult it was for him to get past the nine-hour mark. Right. He would try, and every time it got to the, about nine hours, it was just so painful he had to stop. So uh, he determined, he had to, he made a, a sincere determination you know, at one point that if he stopped meditating at that point without taking the, the practice to its completion, then uh, he vowed that to be reborn in hell. And the mind is a very powerful thing. So if you make a, a deep, sincere vow, you know, if I break this, may I be reborn in hell? Um, you know, it can, it can quite possibly happen. Certainly he believed it would happen. And uh, so when it came to that crucial moment, it took that extra uh, vow to, to really push him through. But... Uh, you know, and that was a crucial moment uh, of insight for him, for, for those type of people taking this, process, this practice of watching Vedana, understanding Vedana, uh, has very deep results, beneficial results. But we can practice in small ways, you know, just by uh, sitting still. You know, and when discomfort arises, just being aware of it. And I mean... Remember in, in Thailand, when we were listening to Dhamma talks, we would have to sit on hard floors. We didn't have these nice cushions. Uh, we didn't have these fluffy mats. Um, we're not allowed to use uh, meditation cushions, so we had to sit f- flat on a hard floor, usually a concrete floor. Maybe there'd be a, a little plastic mat on top of the concrete floor. And we'd have to sit there in this polite posture with one leg back and it was, it was a very uncomfortable posture. But that was the polite way to, to listen to uh, Dhamma talks in Thai. And there were times when teachers would come to Wapanachat and we'd just have to sit there and it was impolite to move. And we'd just have to, to, to stay with it, just kind of stay with it, being mindful and not giving in to that, that wish to move and just staying with it. And uh, you could do it for a while, and then eventually you'd say, you kind of, kind of try to <clears throat> maybe just very slowly <laughs> shift the legs to the other side. And uh, that would work for a while, and I feel a sense of relief. But then uh, the Dhamma talk would continue on, and uh, would build up again, and then eventually you'd try to shift back to the first side again, and then but then the periods of relief became shorter and shorter until eventually you just had to be there and just be patient. And then this 
this uh, capacity for being patient with our body become greater and greater. So if you're ever feeling desperate, then come back to your senses. Come back to your senses. Wake up. Come back to uh, sensations in the body. Come back to uh, seeing. When we see something, you know, now the sun's starting to set. I mean, my mind gives rise to Sukha Vedana, which we typically call beautiful. I mean, is that beautiful or what? But I also at the same time realize that, you know, that is projected from my own mind. It's not inherently beautiful or ugly. So I can appreciate it, but I'm maybe not caught by it as much as I used to be. So eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and mind. This is our world. This is how we can wake up, come back to our senses, pay attention to the Vedana. It's happening all the time. And then this helps us to come down off of that fence. We, we don't have to like rationally come to a decision, but just come back to how it is right here and right now, and then allow that process of understanding to deepen, and then that in itself will, will motivate us to not only get off the fence, but maybe even open up the gate. Get off the fence, open up the gate, and we're off on our way. One of the uh, similes, or a famous line in the Buddhist sutras is, Buddha says, Uh, the doors of the deathless have been opened. The deathless is another uh, term for Nibbana or enlightenment, that which does not die. And uh, it's like the Buddha has has opened this gate for us. So if we get off the fence, it's like we can open the gate to the deathless. But at least we can open the gate or open the door to our heart. Because uh, you know, even sometimes, so if it's feeling like it's raining, you know, rain creates rainbows. And so even, even times where it uh, may not be exactly what we want, maybe some dukkha vedana happening, uh, at the same time, the seeds are there for something very special to happen, especially if we attend to it with wisdom. And it's good just to consider, you know, don't wait too long. Um, this uh, process of opening the heart you know, and uh, allowing, um, allowing metta to come forth. Uh, you know, we, we don't want to wait too, too long. We don't want to, uh, we want to do that before it gets too late. And metta is different from ordinary love. Yeah. Uh, it's like a very mature form of love where we can, can care for people without 
wanting something from them or demanding something from them or or putting them in a position where uh, we're assuming they have to do something to please us you know <clears throat> we're getting closer and closer to unconditionality just care for people just care for people and you know start with the people that we like and appreciate the fantastic people we have in our life I mean recently uh, uh, past couple of months I've just felt so blessed been spending time with family I'm just so blessed to have such great family and and uh, I, this just you know so much love and acceptance and yeah, I'm spending time with old friends that I haven't connected with in a long time, and um, and just feeling that you know real sense of of uh, care and 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 love and and interesting. A lot of these people that I that I haven't been in contact with for a while, they've started their own meditation practice, and now they have questions. <laughs> go to go to see my aunt and uncle, and and they're starting what's. Well, we started going to a group. They do kind of insight meditation practice. Do you know about that? <laughs> <laughs> and um, <laughs> my best friend in high school, you know, I connected with him after 30 years, not having seen each other, and uh, we, uh, we found we have even more in common now, just so much love between us. And, um, and a few years ago, he really started to get into meditation, and now he's fully into it. He's got a very strong daily practice. But, you know, that, that sense of, uh, um, I don't know, just, just um, like I was saying, we, we project a lot uh, of what our, wor- what our world is, what we consider our world. You know? So if we're, if we're feeling a lot of unconditional love and kindness for the people around us, we tend to get a lot back, or we tend to end up in situations where we just feel surrounded by it. And that's, uh, um, you know, if you're in, if you're still in the world, that's probably a good place to be. And it's a, uh, it's a very good practice in and of itself, and it's a great offering to the world. So, I offer this for your reflection today. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.